We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. See, there's obsession and then there's Virgo obsession. So if I wrote like you all wrote, I would still be writing one paragraph for the rest of my life. Hi, Disha. Hey, Donnie. And welcome, everyone, to Ursa Short Fiction, the podcast where we geek out on our favorite short stories. I'm Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I'm Disha Filia, author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. As always, this show is produced with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll get exclusive bonus episodes and you'll help fund future stories and conversations. Now, today we're bringing you something a little different and exciting, a conversation with a guest who shares insights, not only as a writer, but as an editor too, Den Michelle Norris. So in this conversation, we talk about Den's incredible story, I Know How This Dream Ends, and we get the scoop on her upcoming novel. But we also talk about her work as an editor. In fact, Disha, Den edited Eula, the first story from The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, right? That's right. It's the first story that appears in the collection. It's the first story that was published from what would become the collection, uh, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. And I just have this wonderful memory of Den and me on the phone, but also in the same Google Docs. Um, (laughs) The issue was literally going to print as soon as we figured out the ending. And I wrote that story with her over my digital shoulder as I wrote and deleted and wrote and deleted until I nailed the ending, which people love. And I just thank Den so much for literally just like shepherding me through that process with so much care. Yes. And, you know, Den talks about that moment of y'all being in the Google Doc together. And I just, I think it's so cool to have an editor's perspective on this episode and, and to think mm-hmm. about, you know, as an, you know, I was an editor in a past life for magazines and not for fiction, but uh, journalism. But also, I think how the two sides of the brain can work together. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it was so interesting to talk to her about how the editor, how the editing helps the writing process and, and vice versa. So, so excited to get into it. As you also heard earlier this season on the podcast, Din also edited our girl, Don Teal W. Moniz's short story, An Almanac of Bones. Yes, yes. Yes. Between Din, Michelle Norris, and Matt Johnson, they are like the patron saints of our guests. The linchpins, yes. (laughs) A little more about Din. She is the editor-in-chief of Electric Literature, winner of the 2022 Whiting Literary Magazine Prize. She is the first Black, openly trans woman to helm a major literary publication. Din is a 2021 Out 100 honoree. Her writing has been supported by McDowell, Tin House, VCCA, and the Cambilio Center for African American Fiction, and appears in McSweeney's American Short Fiction and Zora. 
She is the former fiction editor for both Apogee Journal and The Rumpus, and is co-host of the critically acclaimed podcast Food for Thought. That's T-H-O-T, Thought. (laughs) Her debut novel, When the Harvest Comes, is forthcoming from Random House. So, without further ado, here is our conversation with Den Michelle Norris. Din Michelle Norris, what a joy to talk to you today. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of Ursa and the two of you, and this is just such a pleasure. Oh my gosh. Well, we are fans too, big fans of yours. <laughs> yes, and we have so much to pick your brain about, but I, I want to start at the place of talking about your journey as a writer and an editor. When did you first start writing stories? And how did you know that you could not only write stories, but be helpful to other people writing stories? You know, like many writers, I was writing stories from a very young age. I would just write them in those little those little college ruled mead notebooks. If you remember those, they had the black and white cover. Yes. Mm-hmm. I always tell people I wrote my first novel in one of those. It was forty two pages long. I was twelve years old. Yes. <laughs> um, it will never see it will never see the light of day. But I, so I I just wrote and wrote and wrote as a kid. But I didn't really think anything of it in terms of a career. And then when I started my schooling, my college schooling, I'd had some teachers in high school who had said I was a good writer and I should like take some creative writing classes in college. So I just was like, I'll do that. I'll like take some classes and just like enjoy it. And I really, I I took a few workshops. I always had good feedback, but I just sort of thought of it as a really fun thing to do. Just another way of like stretching my brain. And when I graduated college in 2008, the economy was terrible. It was the recession. Um, And I had an English degree from a liberal arts college. It was really hard to get a job. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing because I'd had an idea for a novel that I thought I would write when I retired from being like a lawyer or something. (laughs) And um, by the end of the summer after college, I had written a short story and I read it over immediately. And I was like, this is awful. This is so terrible. But I loved every minute of doing it. And so I think I want to be a writer and I'm going to try to like do this. And I gave myself five years to publish anything. And I said, if I didn't publish anything within five years, I would go to law school. And lucky for me, I did publish my first short story four years later. And it was my time in grad school at Sarah Lawrence, where I started to realize that I could be that like what I thought about stories um, and my assessment of them was useful to writers. Because when I was in grad school, I actually, the first semester I left school for a month, my father passed away very suddenly and I was out of school for a month and all of my professors were like, everyone is asking where you are and they miss your contributions to their stories. Oh, wow. They miss your feedback. They think that you're really valuable and and they miss Mm -hmm. you being there. And so I thought, oh, this might be useful. And they had a lit mag at Sarah Lawrence for the grad students that, that we got to run. And so I worked as a reader and then as the assistant fiction editor on that magazine called Lumina while I was there. And that was where I began to realize that I loved editing, but I didn't think too much about it until a few years later after school when the editors of Apogee Journal approached me to apply to be their new fiction editor. 
And I'm honored to be among the growing number of writers who can say that you helped us <laughs> achieve their vision. Um, so can you talk a bit more about that work of helping writers achieve their vision sort of more expansively? And it's really about community, writing community. And, mm-hmm. and so can you talk about the role of community in your writing and editing lives and how you go about building community? Community is like, you know, this the, the core of everything I think I do in the writing world and every, every space that I try to be in. I'm trying to build community because the process of writing, for me at least, is so solitary. That can be really difficult. And what happens is the process is so solitary, but so much of bringing writing into the world so that people can read it and enjoy it is not solitary. You need community Mm -hmm. for that. And Mm -hmm. my feeling also is that writing is such an act of the utmost generosity. And so is editing in the same way, because you're doing, you're really doing this for other people in certain ways. And so community is like, is central to that. And I always like to tell people that community is how I've gotten to where I am in so many ways. The folks who started Apogee were the people who approached me to join their staff. And some of them were people I had gone to school with at Sarah Lawrence. And so they remembered the value that they felt I had brought to the classroom there and were like, you should be an editor. Like, you should be an editor here and and join our team. And so for me, I feel like everything that I've done, community is is at the, the sort of core of it. And when it comes to how I approach editing work, I feel as though... I'm in service of the writer. Like that is, that's why I'm doing that. I'm, I'm providing a service to the writer. I'm in service of the writer and their vision. It is not for me to impose my vision for what a story should be onto a writer who has a different vision. And so I really try to keep that in mind and I try to let them sort of lead the way. I try to understand what their intentions are for something, a couple of different arenas, sort of like like in terms of craft, like what they want it to be, what they want it to look like, how they might want it to sound. I keep that in mind. I keep the sort of content ideas in mind or the emotional heft, what kind of impact they might want to have on a reader. I try to perceive that from the, all of that from the writing. And then in, in communication with the writers, I try to glean that. And sometimes it may be my place to help a writer expand that a little bit or grow it, but I can't replace it and I can't like Mm -hmm. change it. All I can do is maybe offer tweaks or say like, as a reader, I think this is how this is coming across. And maybe we can like find a more effective way to accomplish what you're trying to do. But it really is about being in service to the writer. And I think in that way, that's very community oriented as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And something that writers really appreciate for sure. And one time for people in workshop who are actually helpful. I mean, you know, we yes. talk about <laughs> workshops and MFA programs. A lot of it is complaining about the terrible things people have said to us, but it's also can be a very wonderful communal experience and you can find your lifetime readers in, in that kind of situation. So I love to hear that. I mean, I, if I heard that from my classmates, I would just feel so fulfilled that my presence was missed, my feedback was missed. I think that's a beautiful thing. Thank you. It really made me feel vindicated because I, you know, not to talk too much about MFA programs, but Sarah Lawrence is not 
a well-funded program. Like you, like I took out loans to go there. I paid for that degree. And I was very nervous about that. And I was like, is anything going to happen? Like, am I ever going to actually write anything that's useful to anyone? Am I ever going to publish? And so the first affirmation I got being that I was of use to my classmates was really, really important to me. And it is the sort of thing that put that bug into my ear that however my own writing went or didn't go, working with writers, editing writers, helping writers in that way was also a really worthwhile pursuit. Mm-hmm. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, I think we want to talk a little bit uh, about Din as writer. And um, we had the joy of reading several of your stories. One of them published in McSweeney's, a beautiful story called I Know How This Dream Ends. And you'd mentioned that you are particularly proud of that story and its journey to publication. And I'm wondering if you can share um, with our listeners about that story. Yes. So that story... I Know How This Dream Ends is so, so, so dear to my heart. It is the longest piece of writing that I've, in terms of the amount of time I've spent working on it, that I have in my entire gallery of like writing projects that I have done. And so I started working on that story in 2009. I had moved to Philadelphia because I went to college there and I had every intention of applying to MFA programs. And I just... um, was taking a workshop at my college. They had the writer Linda Berry come for a two-day workshop. And so my um, my mentor in college was like, why don't you just come take the workshop with the students who are there? It'll be great for you. I know you loved her work. And so I did this two-day workshop and she just gave us a lot of prompts and we would write on them. And so one of the prompts was a photograph, a black and white photograph. And so I just wrote from the photograph and I wrote a scene of this young child who was traumatized in some way and who had pushed his classmate off of the the swing set into the wood chips. And I like wrote that scene. And Linda Berry was like, you were like afterwards, she was like, I try not to say anything, but you are a writer. Like you were Mm -hmm. a writer and you need to like do this. And I worked on that story for a whole year and I took it to a workshop that I was in And they loved it, but they were like, oh, it's not quite ready. It's very, it was very, very explicit in terms of what was in it. And I felt like it was so explicit. I couldn't even like show it to anyone in grad school because I started grad school the next year. And so I just sort of worked on it quietly. I sort of like, like, like hunched over my desk, writing it mostly by hand for several years, trying to figure out the balance of this story. And then I actually forgot about it for a few years. And so fast forward to 2015, I was home for the holidays and I found the printed copies of this story from when I had workshopped it in Philadelphia. And I thought, the bones of this story are good. It needs to be rewritten, but the bones are good. You should work on it. And I just had it in the back of my mind for a couple of years. And so what happened was, in 2017, I went to McDowell, and I was there for two months. 
And I had been asked to send a story to Tin House. And I thought, well, I was hoping to work on this story, so let me work on it. In a one-week flurry, I wrote the story there. And I sent it to Tin House, and they loved it, but they rejected it. And I knew it needed some work. And I spent the next, like, two years trying to figure out what to do with it. Like, where can I publish this? And I felt very much that it was a good enough story to get into like a very top tier publication. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's what I'm doing. I had other editors at other magazines who actually heard me read it at different points and were like, send it to us. And not to be like a diva, but I was like, I want this to go to like a top tier, major, major journal. That is what I want for this story. I don't want it to go anywhere else. And my agent was sending it out and it just kept getting rejected. And I was like, I know that this story is worth it. And so what happened was the way that it found its way into McSweeney's was in 2020, they were like, we're doing a queer fiction issue. And... I saw the call for submissions, but it was a very short window, like a very short submission window. And I was like, I don't even think I'm going to get the story ready in time. But I sent it to a friend and she was like, this is really special, but here are all the things that you need to work on. And I was like, oh, I don't, I'm not going to be able to finish this in time. And so I just sort of gave up on that dream. But I was like, I'm going, I'm just going to work on this because this is the best edit I've ever gotten. And it's showing me like the path for this story. And so I worked on it for about five weeks. And then the editor of the queer fiction issue at McSweeney's, Patrick Cottrell, just emailed me out of the blue and was like, "Um, I'm a huge fan of your writing. I'm wondering if you'd submit something for the issue. And I said, I need a week, but I, I will have something for you. And so I worked on the story for the next week and then I sent it to to Patrick. And luckily enough, it was accepted. But it was this long and winding road. I had been working on the story for 11 years, on and off. And it got so many rejections. But I really held tight to the fact that I wanted it to be at a particular kind of publication that had a particular sort of, you know, sort of cultural relevance that people would know. And I wanted to get paid a certain amount of money for that story. And it took a really long time, but I it got there. It got there. Just sort of magically, it felt like. And so for me, that story, I think about that process a lot because I tend to write slowly. It takes me a long time to, fi- to, to finish projects and to get them to where I want them to go. I'm learning that this is just how I work. And it can be really hard when you are in the dark for so long about your work. Like, you don't know how it's going to turn out, where it's going to be, what's going to happen. But for me, I feel like I learned the lesson that if I hold tight to my vision of, like, where I want something to be and how I want it to go, I can get it there, even if I don't know how I'm going to get it there in that moment. I love that. So inspiring. So inspiring. 11 years. That makes me want to go back in my old files and like those little things that I'm just like, oh, right. let me let me take another look. <laughs> Every once in a while I do. Every once in a while I go back and I look look at stories that I wrote a long time ago. It's the only one that I've looked at and I've thought, oh, it had legs. But you never know. Like in the right yeah. mindset, you might look through something old and be like, oh, actually, I know what to do with this now. Yeah. And one quick follow-up about this story, too. As you noted, it's from the point of view of a very young child. And the narration, to me, just felt so pitch perfect. And as with most things that seem effortless in fiction, I imagine that you spent a long time kind of honing that voice. What advice would you give to writers who are working with child narration? 
child narration is, I find it to be really difficult. It's not something I'm eager to do again. But I think the best way to approach it is to read work that is narrated by young people. And mm-hmm. I don't even think it has to be necessarily, like if you're writing something about a 10-year-old and, and it's in that voice, I think you could read something that's narrated by a teenager and sort of adjust based on that. But you really do have to get yourself into the frame of mind of of how a child might think about something and how a child might speak on something. And I just think like immersing yourself into work that does that is really helpful. So for me, I read and reread The Bluest Eye during that time because Mm -hmm. that felt really relevant to me in terms of some of the things that the story deals with thematically. And I always felt like Toni Morrison, I've always felt that she does child narrators extraordinarily well. And she's really masterful in terms of understanding the line between, okay, the person who's reading this is likely an adult. The voice is that of a child. How do I manage both the voice of this child and also the knowledge that I, as the writer, get to dispense within the story? And what does the child know and understand? Um, And what does the adult reader know and understand? And where is the porousness between those two things? And how do I navigate that? I think she's a master at it. So that's what I was thinking about a lot, which is why, again, I'm not eager to do it again. But if (laughs) if it comes up, I will. To touch on something you said in as you were describing the process of getting I Know How This Dreams In, getting it published, you mentioned having an agent, but only now that you have this book project, this book length project. Um, so can you talk a bit about how you got your agent as you were writing short stories when you started, you know, the journey towards, you know, this novel, but then also having an agent who could support you as you were looking to publish short fiction? Absolutely. I will just say right off the bat, I adore my agent. I think he's amazing and he really understands how to work with me psychologically. And that I think is really important. In terms of getting him, I was working on a novel at the time and I've been working on this novel for about 10 years now at this point. And um, I've recently finished it, but it's it, it was 10 years. And so the way that that worked is that the year before I became the fiction editor at Apogee Journal, a friend of mine, Mimi Watkins or Esme Michelle Watkins, <laughs> became the fiction editor at Apogee Journal first. And she was really interested in publishing me there. And so she asked me to send her something. And I knew that they published excerpts of novels. And so I sent an excerpt of this novel, but I didn't send it as a story. I literally sent like a scene. Like, like I just was like, oh, they take excerpts. I'll send a scene. And so I sent a scene and she wrote back to me and she was like, I love this and I'd love to publish it, but it's not like it needs to read as a story. Like it needs to read as a complete story. So I need you to either rework it or send me something else. And so I reworked it. And I, I actually pulled some other scenes from the novel and shaped it into something that I felt stood alone as a story. And then I wrote some new scenes as well. And I shaped all of that into like a 5,000 or so word story, sort of standard length story. And I sent it back and they published it. And so what happened next was really, again, sort of magical. But there's a wonderful, wonderful editor and writer named Jennifer Baker in the literary scene. If, If listeners don't know who she is, like follow her on Twitter. She's amazing. And she was editing an anthology that was going to be published by Atria Books called Everyday People, The Color of Life. It was an anthology of writers of color. And she had asked me to submit something for that anthology. 
And so I sent her several stories and she ended up choosing that excerpt that had been published in Apogee Journal. And so she published it in that anthology. That anthology, you know, ended up on the on the desk of some book editors. And so some folks became very interested in seeing my novel when they learned that that was an excerpt from my novel. And so once that happened, I decided that it was probably a smart idea to get an agent and not send editors my work without having representation. And so I sent that mm. story to a number of agents and they were all very interested and I met with them and, and I ended up choosing Robert, my agent, who I am obsessed with. But it just sort of happened that it found its way into the hands of people who recognized you know, the writing and wanted to learn more from me. And so I was able to do that. And he he was very clear. He said, I, I will submit short stories on your behalf as well. Like if the novel's not ready, he was, he was like, I'll submit short stories, nonfiction pieces, essays, profile pieces, whatever you want or need to do. I'm here to help you with that. And I think, you know, most agents generally in my experience and from what I hear about feel that way and will help writers do that if they're if they're able to, you know, sign with the agent before a book is done. Um, and I think it can be really helpful. I think it can be really helpful in building up a profile before your book is done. And I'm so glad you shared that because I've been hearing from a lot of writers lately who that's not their experience with their agents. Their agents aren't even doing the things they're supposed to be doing for book projects, much less, you know, for short form projects. And so, you know, I feel about my agent the way you feel about Mm -hmm. your agent. And so I think it's so important for writers who are listening to understand that the experience that you're having with your agent, if it doesn't feel right and you feel like they could be doing more or should be doing more, know that, you know, you're not asking for too much. (laughs) Maybe you're just Mm -hmm. asking the wrong person. If your agent Mm -hmm. isn't the type of agent that's willing to advocate and to represent all of your work and not just your book length projects. 100%. I think that I sort of I use the term rabbit a lot when I think about how I how I think an agent should be about their writers and their writers work. It should just be this almost like never ending enthusiasm and support and excitement and patience because it does take time to do Mm -hmm. this work. But it should always be there. I have a friend who has not been thrilled with their agent recently. And, um, you know, the thing I always used to hear was, oh, they stick by they stick by me, even though I'm like, maybe not as successful as we had hoped. And I was like, I don't know if that's necessarily the standard. I think we should be looking at whether your agent is doing everything they can to make you as successful as we think your talent says that you should be. Like, I think that's Mm, the key. mm -hmm. But I think, like, I have only learned that that nuance recently as I'm going through my own process with my with my book with my agent and with my short fiction with my agent so there's like one of the things that I feel like I'm learning is that there's so much that you just there's so many nuances to this business that Mm -hmm. it's hard to really learn until you're in it even when you're in it but that's why it's so important for spaces like this writers like you two editors like me and writers like me because we can open our mouths and share this knowledge to folks who are not in the positions that we're in in order to help them get into the kinds of positions that we're in. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. Finger snaps. Finger snaps. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So about this novel, 
which full disclosure, I've had the honor of seeing some chapters. And actually, I believe it was an excerpt from your novel, a different excerpt from the story audition that I first read in 2015 when we met in Taos as Cambilio Fellows. And I remember that excerpt, but I think it was your short story, Daddy's Boy, that was the first like short story of yours that I read, like, you know, published out in the world. Um, it was published it, on the jewel that is Smoke Long Quarterly. That was my introduction to that journal. And I remember being struck by this story, the vivid and really carnal imagery and how you blended the sacred, the church, and the sensual. I was just in awe of that. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about the ways that you feel your short fiction writing has evolved from the time of that stories in terms of substance as well as craft and style. Oh my goodness. Well, yes. I mean, one thing is that I think that will probably never change too much is that I'm so interested in Black queer lives and the intentions within masculinity, femininity, bodies, and how all of those things are like at work and at conversation with each other. But I think, I think one of the the big evolutions, which like sort of mirrors my, my identity, like I came out as a trans woman last year, is the fact that I'm more explicit and more intentional about tr- specifically transness in all of my fiction right now, whether it's, whether it's, you know, more book length projects or more short stories, I'm working on, on all of the above, but it used to be that I was very interested in writing stories about like queer black boys um, or men. And that hasn't necessarily changed, but that purview has grown a little bit because I'm more interested in stories that explore where that queerness goes, where that femininity, which might have been latent in some of those stories or in some of those characters, where that goes once it's been given the opportunity to blossom. So there's this like a path or a road. And I feel like each piece of writing is like a step down a road. And I feel like I used to take these very small steps and now each step is just sort of like a much longer step, like a, like the, mm. the, the one foot is stepping further away from the other foot. And I'm trying to take characters on these like longer journeys mm-hmm. um, or I'm positioning them further along in a journey, in a story, even if maybe the story isn't the journey itself. I'm positioning them further in that story. Like right now, I'm thinking a lot about where a character might be in a story I'm writing and what I might want a reader to know about them five years down the line and where they are then. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. through how does that how does that come into the story or does it come into the story, if that makes sense. Totally mm-hmm. makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thinking about your life as an editor. So for electric literature, you you work on primarily essays as an editor. And previous to that, you've edited some of my favorite short fiction, really stellar work. So we're talking An Almanac of Bones by Don Teal W. Moniz, our girl. Mm-hmm. Of course, the opening story of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, Eula. Um, and a prize-winning story by my girl, Jade R. Jones. Today, you're a Black revolutionary. And so I'm curious, on the editing side, when you open a writer's work for the first time, what in that story or that essay gives you the tinglies? 
So I used to say that if the language was there, that was enough for me because I'm Mm. so oriented, I'm so drawn in by really beautiful lyrical rhythmic writing, writing that has a sound and writing that has its own voice. And I don't mean like a character's voice, I mean the words on the page, the syllables that are chosen, that they create their own voice in my ear as a reader. I'm very, very attuned to that and I'm very interested in that. And I used to say that's all I needed. But now that I edit professionally and I edit like full time, that's not the only thing. I'm looking so much more now for a marriage of that element along with characters whose life on the page, I guess, is supported by that language. But that language is not the only reason why that Mm. character has real life on the page for me. I'm looking for like plot lines or narratives, even though not everything has to have a plot specifically, but I'm looking for plot lines or narratives or questions that will linger for me. And I'm and I'm not necessarily looking for stories that give answers as much as I'm looking for stories that spurn further questions or that give answers that I can sit with for a long time because I want a story to linger. I will never forget when I read Jade Jade Jones' story for the first time. I'll never forget when I read Eula for the first time or Don Teal's story. Those stories are, like, so memorable for me. So I need some sort of, like, magic in the work already that makes me know that this is going to be really memorable for me as an editor and therefore likely, hopefully, memorable for readers. And I let that sort of determine a lot of the work that I do. But I do also look for... If I know, or if I feel confident in what I can bring to the story to make it, you know, ready for publication and meaningful to readers, if I feel like I can identify what that is, then that's really, really important to me as well. Because then I can lead a writer forward with my full confidence that we're going to get where we need to get. And I didn't know that I thought about it in that way before I was editing full time. So interesting. So in terms of essays... Part of the reason why my aesthetic when it comes to how I edit fiction has evolved is because I've spent now a year editing essays full time. And this has been really interesting for me because when I got the job at Electric Literature, um, I was nervous because I I knew I wouldn't be editing fiction there. I would be editing primarily essays and my editorial experience and my training and most of my writing is fiction. And so... A lot of people in my life are like, oh, it's fine. Like, it's prose is prose. It's fine. And I was like, but it's not all the same. And I, mm-hmm. and I don't yet know how to articulate that. But I know that it's going to, I know that it's going to be different. And of course, I was right. It is different. One of the exciting things about essays is that editing essays as a fiction writer is that you can really bring your fiction skill set to essayists. Because a lot of times essayists get caught up in, because they're writing something that has, they're likely writing something that has happened or they're drawing from real experience, they often feel the need to, to, for example, present everything in chronological order. There's a certain logic to it. And then when you're working for a publication like Electric Lit, we have a certain vision that we're looking for with essays to make them an Electric Lit essay. And it can be easy to fall into a sort of rhythm of doing like the same thing over and over again. And so I found that bringing 
a more fiction-oriented, like, mindset to writers who are working on essays. So, like, having them put certain things in scene that maybe are not in scene, but having them Mm -hmm. put them in scene, like, these kinds of things can make the essays really exciting and really jump up off of the page for readers. Um, And so that's been really exciting. But the other thing that has been, that took me a little longer to figure out, but I've been thinking deeply on this summer um, and sort of doing some reading on this summer is the idea that because when we're dealing with like essays and memoir, we're dealing with things that have actually happened, we're dealing with actual people's lives, there's an idea that for me, that I'm looking for how something functions in the world as a piece of nonfiction writing in a way that I don't have to be as concerned when it's fiction. I'm not saying there's no concern, because there definitely is. But when we're dealing with nonfiction, when we're dealing with things that may have happened, and we're dealing with who's writing something that maybe is even collective experience, for example, um, how are you managing all of that ethically and responsibly and telling a beautiful story? And I think those questions are really interesting And they have impacted the way I think about fiction as well. But they're rooted in the way that I think about editing nonfiction. It's so interesting because, you know, in my my life before fiction writing, I was an editor, a journalist and working for magazines. And I really do feel like the mindset that I took from that sort of helped with certain things in my fiction, like getting to the questions like, earlier, getting to the meat of the thing a little earlier, having a sense of propulsion and kind of like always kind of keeping the whole in mind as I'm moving through the parts. And so Mm -hmm. I love kind of like thinking about, you know, like, yes, these are two different things, but they each knowledge of each can sort of help you with with the other. 100%. 100%. I think I just feel like now I want to like sort of shout from the rooftops that it's so important for writers to consider and try writing across the genre in different ways because they are, it is all helpful. Like all of it's helpful. Yeah. Even when you think it's not. Absolutely. So then I tell the story of how you and I were on the phone editing Eula the day it needed to go (laughs) to print. Um, We were in a shared Google Doc. You know, you could see me trying to write and rewrite that ending, you know, deleting and then trying it again. And then we finally nail the ending together. And that's just always going to be one of my favorite memories. And I am a writer who loves and embraces revision. I I believe that um, what Toni Morrison said is true, that the revision process, that that part is the best part. You know, that's the part she was most enthusiastic about. I hate drafting. I love revision. And so for that reason, editors tend to, to like me because, you know, I, I don't fight them. Um, but I'm wondering how you work with writers who are resistant to revision, or maybe you don't, maybe you just send them packing. So alternatively, what advice do you have for writers who might be resistant? But if you do work with writers who are resistant, how do you handle that? So I have to say, I've been pretty lucky in my personal experience as an editor. I've rarely had writers who are resistant to 
edits. I've had writers where I suggested edits and they didn't take those edits, but they identified something else that was the reason why it wasn't working. And then they fixed mm-hmm. that. That has happened. I think that happened with, with an almanac of bones. Actually, I think there was an edit that I may have suggested. And I think Don Teal was like, I don't know if that's right, but let me do this instead. And then it like solved the problem. But I'm lucky enough. I think once an editor is working with you at a publication, you're so close to being published that that maybe that's why. But for the most part, I don't encounter writers who are too resistant, usually because by that point they've been published enough. Mm-hmm. I think that they have learned that revision and edits are really helpful. Um, I often find that the writers who are most resistant to feedback are writers who have not published and have not gone through that experience yet. So my advice for writers is to allow yourself to consider the feedback. Just simply sit in it and trust your editor because, you know, edit. just as I said that writing is an act of generosity, editing is an act of generosity. And mm. an editor's only intention is for your piece of writing to be as successful as it possibly can. That is the intention. And it benefits everyone involved. It, ben- it benefits them and it benefits the publication and it benefits you as the writer. And so for me, it's always been easy because I also love revising. I'm much like you. Like I don't really care for drafting. It takes me a long time. But when I get to revise and re- when I get to rewrite and then revise and edit, that's where the joy is for me. So my advice is always just to like, think well of the person who's editing your work and think well of their edits and they may or may not be the right edits. Really, edits and suggestions are just a window into the vast opportunity that a writer has to address something that isn't working. Usually, a suggestion is just that. It's a suggestion and it's just one suggestion. But there are many things that you could do. And for me as an editor, I'm always trying to make a suggestion that will, if it doesn't ring true for the writer, it will push the writer's mind into another direction that will yield something that is the right thing that they will figure out. And so, and so I think that's often the intent. And if you think about that, like if you think about it that way, suggestions and edits are possibilities and more possibilities is always a good thing, right? Like in life and art making. And so I always, and so that's how I think of it when I receive that. And that's how I encourage writers who maybe have a hard time with feedback to think about that as, as well. Um, this is, these are just possibilities. And this is creativity. You have a whole creative realm that you can pull from to work on your, mm-hmm. to work on your writing, to make it mm-hmm. as good as it can be, as strong as it can be. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Do you have any writing rituals? I, I have a few, I call them requirements, but I think rituals is a better is a better term. It's a gentler term. And I think I'm going to adopt it. Um, I have to be at a desk or maybe like a kitchen table if I'm in a pinch, but like I need a surface to be that I can be at. I usually need to be as by myself as as I can be in a room with the door closed. I almost always, I would say 98% of the time, occasionally when I'm editing, I may not, but most of the time I play music when I'm writing. Mm. Uh, It's almost always instrumental music because the words will distract me. But occasionally, 
I'll use a song that has lyrics in it if it's really getting me into the the mood that I need to be in to write whatever I'm trying to write. And I love to light a candle. It sounds very precious, but I love... I love to light a candle while I'm writing. And I got into that when I was at McDowell and there was a candle in my studio. So those are the things that I I love to do while I'm writing. I think the other thing is that most pieces of fiction that I'm writing, I don't do this for nonfiction, but most pieces of fiction that I'm writing, I start writing them by hand in a moleskin notebook. And I do that for as long as I can before I feel a certain need to put it in the computer and work faster. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, and it's no set time in the process as to when that happens, but there'll come a point where I'll just feel the need to work faster and then I'll put it into the computer and usually do the rest of the work there. It's so interesting because I've been experimenting with writing by hand and I find that I write faster by hand just because it stops me from self-editing and it stops me from just going back and back and back over every little word, every little sentence, you know? So that's mm-hmm. that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I find, I think that's how it should be. <laughs> I am just an obsessive self-editor. Even when I'm writing by hand, I write a paragraph I edit it, I rewrite it, I edit it, I rewrite it, I edit it again. Like, it's just, it's why I'm so slow. But I have tried for years to train myself out of that and to train myself to be able to get to the end of something. Mm-hmm. And I just cannot seem to do it. I ha- There's something about going back over the words. Um, even if it's like the next day, I'll go back over those words and edit. And then I feel sort of warmed up. Like when I was a musician, I played the viola for a long time growing up. And when I was a musician, I would always, you know, I would start the first 10 or 15 minutes and I would play like open strings to like stretch out, my, loosen up my arms and get, get my shoulders relaxed. And I would do scales to warm up my fingers. And it feels like like going over the words from the day before, it feels like that for me. It feels like a warm up. Mm-hmm. And so I've never been able to stop doing that no matter how I write. But I find that my brain goes fast sometimes and writing by hand, even with that editing, it just slows my brain down and gets Got me it. to a more open, relaxed space, which is good for me. Yeah. And I'm slow like you and, you know, because of the self-editing, but I try to make myself feel better about it because sometimes there's just like your process, you know what I mean? Yes. And I do think that although I'm slower in a first draft, it's cleaner by the time I reach the end. Mm, And so I'm not doing like draft after draft after draft. I have like a pretty solid draft by the time I finally reach the end. Do you, you, is your process sort of similar in that way? 100%, 100%. And I will also say that in terms of work going on submission, I, I typically receive feedback from editors about how clean and polished the writing is and how much they appreciate that and that that really impresses Mm -hmm. them too because of that. And I know that it's because of that work that I put in and that time I put in. And so to me, that feels very worth it. There there are many different ways to skin a cat. There's many different ways to submit work that gets published and many different processes. But for me, I'm sort of relentless in that way. I'm just obsessed. I'm just a little obsessive. But yes, it's mm-hmm. always cleaner at the end. And I rarely have to write many drafts of anything. 
Mm-hmm. See, there's obsession and then there's Virgo obsession. So if I wrote like you all wrote, I would still be writing one paragraph for the rest of my life. There would be no, there would be no chapter. There would be no book. There would be nothing. And I had to learn to do the opposite, which is to finish a draft and then go back. But also over time, it just started to happen more organically because I need to write that way to tell myself the story. Usually mm-hmm. I don't know the story until I've written a draft and then I go back. And so that's when I do a lot of exposition and the backstory and all of that, you know, and, and I can't do it by hand. And I say can't, I don't mm-hmm. do it by hand, but I have been telling myself that at some point just to get my brain working in a different direction, I'm going to try to write by hand for a day and see what happens Mm. because Mm. I have lost the ability. Like my brain has been completely rewired by using a laptop and I don't know that that's a good thing. So yeah. So, so I love what you said then about the process is the process. Like it's whatever works for you. And sometimes it's not helpful when people are prescriptive. So I love that we all have, you know, there's some things that are similar in how we work. And then there's some things that are different, but the work gets done, right? But the work gets done. And that's the thing is like, it's so hard to finish anything that like, whatever gets you to the finish line, um, that's how you do it. And my dad growing up would always say to me, slow and steady wins the race about like everything in life. And for me, that's proven to be true. So it's like, yeah, however you are able to get words on the page and get and, and keep moving forward, that's what someone should do. And that's some of the best advice I've ever gotten. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering also, Den, you know, we, we talked about revision process and knowing when you're done. So it's kind of a two-parter. Do you, how do you know when you're done? And also, is there a story that's been published of yours that you wish that you could go back and revise some more? That's really interesting. I'm going to answer the first, the second part of the question first, because that's a little easier. And really, for the most part, the answer is no. There are little tiny line edits that I would make to certain stories, little tiny things. Maybe I used a word twice in close proximity and I didn't catch it in the copy editor there, I didn't catch it. So things like that. But otherwise, no. In my experience so far, once something is published, I think my brain just sort of shuts off about it and I need to take all that energy into what I'm working on next. And so I think that's why. It's not because I'm sitting here going, oh, it's so good that like it's perfect. It's just I'm like not interested in it anymore. (laughs) Um, It's done. But little things, little things. So this is interesting. I don't write an order in my writing, but I do write sort of more or less beginning to end. So if that if that makes sense. So like a lot of the time, like the ending of a story, I've written that before I've written something that comes before it. And so it's really interesting because when I've written what is the end of a story, I usually haven't intended to write that or to have that be the end. I've just written it and it's come out in a certain way. And I'm like, oh, this is the end. Like, this is the end. I'm not going to do better than this for the end. And I just sort of discover it. When I know something is done, like on the whole, like a story is done on the whole or, or like the book project is done on the whole, I feel as though I've written everything that needed to be written in order for that story to feel whole and complete. And it doesn't mean that everything I've written is in that draft or that manuscript, but I have come up with a manuscript that feels whole and complete 
and tells a story with an arc and and something that at least satisfies me enough that that it just feels done and that's so hard to like put into more specific words it's just a feeling that i get but it just sort of is like i feel that i've put my best foot forward wholly and completely and that's when i know that i'm done or like close to being done or ready to go through the next step in the process mm-hmm. collections that you've loved recently or what's your favorite short story collection oh my gosh okay this wasn't recently published but i read it recently and i can't stop thinking about it there's a short story collection by james baldwin called going to meet the man and it includes the story sunny's blues and i feel like sunny's blues like you know i feel like so many people have read it's like such a you know, renowned story. But there are so many other stories in that collection that are extraordinary. And I feel like no one ever talks about that collection. They just talk about Sunny's Blues. And there's like Mm -hmm. a bunch of stories that are incredible, including the title story at the end. And so I'm always in awe of that collection. I think it's absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Um, I recently read also, again, it's been a few years since it was published, but I recently finally read Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay-Brenya. Yes, yes, yes. Just completely brilliant, mm-hmm. completely amazing, completely incredible, stunning, stunning, stunning stories. Dunteel's collection, Milk Blood Heat, is just absolutely extraordinary, and um, I can't stop thinking about it. I'm obsessed with Disha's collection, as everyone knows. Thank um, you. <laughs> Secret Lives of Church Ladies. I think for a few years I didn't read many collections because I was so focused on my novel. So I'm going back and reading collections from a few years ago. But Leslie Ineka Arima's story collection, Mm -hmm. what -hmm. it means when a man falls from the sky. And that has these speculative elements that I loved so much that they it inspired me to start to try and write speculative fiction, which I had never done and had said I would probably never do. I think that it's an extraordinary collection. And so that's another one that I'm absolutely obsessed with. And then the last one I'll say, and again, this is a few years old, but Roxanne Gay's collection, Difficult Women. I really loved some of some of the stories in that collection. And there's there's a sort of like accessibility to her stories that I find really valuable when I'm working on something that, that feels modern, that feels of today. There's just something about them that feels sort of beautifully everyday, beautifully mundane. And I, as a writer, I sometimes appreciate that it allows me to write things without always trying to sort of like be over the top with certain craft elements. And so I, I return to that collection for some of those, for some of those reasons. And I have, I think what'll be our last question. What is the best sentence you've ever written? Oh my gosh. I don't, I guess I don't know if it's the best or not, but I really love the third sentence in my novel, which is in, it's also the third sentence in that story, The Reverend that was published in Apogee, or it was retitled in Everyday People, The Color of Life. It was called Last Rites. 
And so the third sentence is, it's this, lights will rise from darkness like seraphs dancing red and blue. And I really love that sentence that I, that mm. I wrote. Yes, mm. yes, yes. Beautiful. And a beautiful image to end this wonderful conversation on. Thank you again, Den, for being here with us today. It's been a treat talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a treat to chat with both of you and to talk short fiction. And I just, again, I'm such a huge fan of this show. Thank you. Uh, And we can't wait for your novel to be out in the world. I know. (laughs) In whatever time it takes. (laughs) Whatever time it takes. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you like what we're doing at URSA, be sure to share this podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to support us directly, become an URSA member by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll help fund production of the show and keep us going. We'll see you next time.